0: Welcome to the Education Academy's new podcast series, Academy Conversations. Academy Conversations is a series of interviews with Monash academics about various aspects of their teaching innovations and going a bit more broadly into their lives. I'm your host, Joy Witten, and the first episode to kick off our series was an interview I recorded yesterday, episode one, an interview with Simone Gibson. In the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing and Health Sciences, who won a National Australian Award for University Teaching, Teaching Excellence Award in 2018, and she's also the Director of Education in the School of Clinical Sciences in her faculty. Um, Simone's interview ranged from um, personal reflections on how it felt like to take her son to the receipt of her award in Canberra last year, how she set up a a dietetics clinic, which operates as a a clinic all the way through the year, and her changing notions of what academic uh, life or contribution to society is. So it's quite a broad range. um, And I hope that you find a way to engage with Simone and connect it with your own experience. Welcome, Simone. Thank you, Joy. Dr. Simone Gibson has been teaching nutrition and dietetics in the Department of Medicine, Nursing and Health Sciences for the past seven years, and she's the Director of Education there. In 2018, she was the recipient of an Australian Award for University Teaching Excellence, a very difficult award to re- to. to to earn. Mm -hmm. Um, So congratulations, Simone. Yeah, thanks. And we're here talking to Simone in a number of capacities. Um, Simone, I heard that you took your son to the awards ceremony in Canberra. How did he find it? And how do you think it influenced how he thought of you? And what do you think educating young people is primarily about in this new 21st century. So I'm assuming he's a young person.
1: Yeah, he is. He's actually a Monash student. So he's uh, doing a double degree in art science and he's just started third year. Uh, so I think it was really relevant for him to see, like, his mum, is one of the lecturers. And, um, and yeah, we, we caught the plane up to Canberra and he had to get a bit dressed up out of his usual student clothes. Uh, So that was exciting in itself. Um, Look, I think he's, I think he's really proud of me. I'm a single mum. And um, so there's, there's just the two of us. So I think, you know, we have like a, a very close relationship. And one of the things that, I mean, I don't know, I can't read his mind, but hopefully he can see that you know, just because we don't have like the traditional family unit, um, he can see that you can still succeed. It doesn't, um, you know, that that sort of traditional trajectory of families that doesn't have to hold you back. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So in terms That's of nice. yeah, um, mm. so in terms of the other questions um, about educating young people in in like the twenty first century now, I like. One of the things is there is so much information out there and I don't think it's about you know, me telling my students how it is and what to learn because what what I feel like that we need to do is teach them how to navigate all of that information and where to find it, how to evaluate it, how to assimilate it and how to actually problem-solve with it. Um, yeah, rather an interesting, science arts. Yes, it's a
0: great combination, and um, I always am curious about because I think all of us teachers we don't know how the students, the double degree students, experience Monash. Um, can I just ask you what he thinks he's
1: gained by getting quite close to quite distinct disciplines? Yeah, look, I think there's there's advantages and there's also challenges. One of the things that I think is difficult for students doing a double degree is they're not sort of encapsulated in any cohort. So they're sort of a little bit freewheeling because like, you'll have lectures at Caulfield, lectures at Clayton, and then because... In each uh, degree, he might be doing a first or a second year subject. So it's not like, Mm -hmm. you know, when I went to uni, like we all started in first year, then most of us went on to second year, and then most of us went on to third year, and we sort of were together a little bit. Whereas the double degree students, um, I think socially it might be a little bit harder for them to connect with their classmates because they are all over the place but you know on the on the positive is they do get that breadth of experience and um you know really get to try out some different things so what's happened with my son i think he's um he's learning that he's more of an arts person than a science person um and yeah but look there are, the other thing is there's so many subjects to choose from and like when i went through it was a science degree and you know i had a little bit of flexibility within that but uh, like I look at all the options that that he can choose from, and there are just hundreds of them. And um, I know that there's career support at Monash, but um, you know, I think that possibly some guidance from people is, you know, from from senior people would be helpful for those students to sort of work out well what subjects should I be choosing to be strategic in in um, being able to get a job at the mm. end of all of these. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, when you've got such a good start, as I think such
0: diverse ways of thinking is he's bringing to whatever he ends up doing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, now because jobs aren't... I mean, like there are some traditional jobs that, you know, that they have their normal graduate pathway. But a lot of the time, um, you know, there's all of these new jobs that are out there that we, we, we don't even know what they are um, in terms of what's going to be available in five years' time. And some of the jobs that people are doing certainly didn't exist when, when I was going through university. So I think we have to prepare them for this really uncertain future and having, having those skills like taking initiative, problem solving, communication skills, um, uh, you know, they're the things that are going to make them really adaptable um, for employment or for entrepreneurship perhaps in the future. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, I agree. So
0: Simone, you, what led you into the field of dietetics? What triggered your interest or involvement in that?
1: Uh, yeah, well, um, so you
0: started in science, did you,
1: but shifted to dietetics? Well, uh, so I, dietetics is actually a science. A science, yeah. So, but what the reason that I got into it is probably not the same as most people I know. I had no passion about nutrition. Um, I didn't do much study when I was at high school. I, um, I, I wasn't really, yeah, I wasn't a studious person and I managed to scrape through my year 12 and I didn't get very good marks. So there weren't many universities in Melbourne that actually wanted me. So I ended up at Deakin in um, Geelong and, um, and I did want to do science, I knew that. So I got into a science degree there and they I I think what I wanted to do was zoology um, and I thought oh I might try and get some good marks and then course transfer back to like Melbourne University or something if I you know really put my head down Um, but I didn't end up doing that and I was doing science and they happened that happened to be the only university in Victoria that offered dietetics which was a graduate diploma and most people doing science down at deacon then um were wanting to do dietetics and all of these people say oh are you are here to do dietetics and I never even heard of it um so as I was studying I thought you know what I, I don't think I can see myself working in a lab I am a people person and mm-hmm. being a dietitian looks like I'll be able to combine science with actually communicating with people mm-hmm. um, because I really do love having a chat so mm-hmm. um yeah, that's how I ended up doing dietetics. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great tune. <laughs> <laughs> By but, default, rather than any kind of yeah, no, no, uh, special gift.
0: One. <laughs> um, Simone, I've heard it said that we're producing too many dietitians, but nutrition-related mm-hmm. diseases are still increasing globally, which seems like a contradiction. Mm-hmm. How do you think about graduate employability and how does this affect how you teach and what you teach?
1: Yeah, so it is really tough for graduates now. Um, and as more people are interested in learning about nutrition, more universities are offering nutrition focused and dietetic courses. Uh, so we have more than ever um, dietitians graduating. Um, but as you said, Nutrition-related diseases is increasing and the Global Burden of Disease study has found that poor nutrition is the single biggest risk factor for early death. So we have, you know, this workforce that's emerging. We have clearly a need for it globally. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, government funding hasn't really followed the patterns for either of those. And, um, and government funding has not increased in primary care or in nutrition, in the proportionate amount. So, um, yeah, we do need more dietitians than ever. So what we need to do is start thinking about, well, if they're not going to get employed in um, the traditional roles, like when I graduated, you either went to community, uh, like a community health centre, or um, you might work for government or public hospitals, that sort of thing. So you can still follow that route, but we find that only 20% of our graduates end up working in hospitals. Um, so I think that they, need, our, our graduates, need to think a lot bigger and think about maybe private practice, um, looking at um, online communication, um, having social media influence. Uh, They we do have them starting to work for food companies, um, you know, just really sort of Mm. opening up where they're they're going to go. And they're going to have to often create their own jobs. But look, the good thing is the general public are really interested in nutrition. Mm. And studies have shown that the general public are really confused about what they should eat. Because you know, like there's this diet, that diet. One minute they're saying eat no carbs, next minute they're saying eat more carbs, and mm-hmm. it's it's it is very confusing. And our graduates are, are well equipped to answer those questions. Mm-hmm. So, I think what we need to train them in is is private practice skills, like how to run a business mm-hmm. and how to set up a business. Mm-hmm. Maybe marketing, um, social media. Like that's a that huge conversations are happening on social media. It's a huge influence on on what people eat and. And our, I think our graduates need to be a part of that conversation to make sure that the right messages are getting out and it's not just the, you know, the, the money-making supplement makers that are the ones dominating the conversation. Yeah, I see.
0: So entrepreneurialism is right squarely in relevant to your area, isn't it? Yeah, I think mm. so. Okay. Now, another thing, Simone, is I know that 20% of the dietetics cohort are international students. Mm-hmm. And that you've done a lot of work to engage with placement supervisors to respond to this group in particular. What particular challenges do they face on placement? And what difference has your innovative engagement with placement coordinators
1: made to their learning experience? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, international students um, often do find placement challenging. You know, they come to Monash with um, a particular English language proficiency, which is, you know, normally pretty good, but it's academic English. And the way that people talk in day to day conversation is often quite different. Um, So, our students will go to a variety of placements, and most of them will end up in a public hospital at some stage. And so, public hospitals. Uh, have patients from many different backgrounds um, so different cultural backgrounds different socioeconomic backgrounds and um, and our our students need to know how to adjust their level of conversation according to who they're talking to so they might be talking to someone who has English as a second language but from a language different to their own all the way to one of you know the consultant of the intensive care unit so um You know, we take it for granted, I guess, as native English speakers that we can adjust our our style of conversation to these different types of people. And Mm -hmm. um, international students would find that challenging if English, you know, I know I'd find it challenging if I was speaking another language, having to adjust my my level, because I'd just be trying to speak the language, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's the language, but there's also um, the way that people, uh, you know, the non-verbal communication and... um, and being student dietitians, we're always talking about food, obviously. So the food that people eat, um, the brand names. So you know, like people might say, you know, yeah, for morning tea, I might have a Rivedas, ro- or and and so they have to know the different brand names of different things. So that's another thing they've got to learn mm-hmm. that our local students would just have have common knowledge about. Mm. Um the Australian sense of humour is really different as well to a lot of cultures. So, you know, students who might be chatting to a patient, and a lot of patients like to joke and international students don't quite know how to take some of the humour. Mm. Um, so, yeah, all of those things together do make placement a little bit more stressful for international students. and um, And therefore their supervisors on placement have to sort of train them on, on that as well as the normal clinical skills. So I, mm. I have to say, though, that when students go on placement, all of them find it stressful, mm. international and local. Like it's a whole – like especially being in a hospital, there's sick people, everyone's mm. busy, mm. it's um, it's a stressful environment. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so there's those other layers. So um, – we we thought that we needed to support the clinical educators or the placement educators who were supervising these students. So some of the things that we've done are um, uh, sort of describing uh, the student experience for them and highlighting these extra challenges that international students have um, and sort of layering that is the is the fact that international students are here by themselves often, you know, their families are back home, so their support systems mm. aren't here either. Mm. Um, and, yeah, hoping that the placement educators have a bit more empathy for um, international students, even though they might take up a little bit more of their time, um, and giving them some, some skills in, in how, to, how to manage that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, look, something as simple as giving an international student a little bit longer to reflect if they need it um, has been shown to be really beneficial for, for that relationship between the student and the placement educator. Mm-hmm. But So we started off um, these initiatives of, of incorporating international student training into the professional development workshops that we offer um, our placement educators. Um, and we also provide um, special sessions for international students um, to help prepare them for placement as well. Um, So, you know, talking about conversational English versus academic English, talking about brands of foods and all the things that Mm -hmm. I sort of spoke about before. Mm -hmm. And and we've been really lucky to have um, one of our past students um, who is, she's completed her PhD with us and um, and she was an international student, so her name's Tammy Choi. I know her. Yeah, and yes. she has been amazing for our international students. So she set up um, a mentoring group mm-hmm. for international students to help um, to help them sort of adjust to life here in Australia in terms of studying nutrition science and dietetics, but also to help prepare them for placement. Um, and so, and she's also helped us understand international student learning as well they you know there's a slightly different way of learning that they're used to so mm. she's been really benefi- beneficial um and I also have to acknowledge the enormous amount of support that Sheila Vance from SASU has given us so she gives one-on-one training to our international students to help prepare them for their OSCIs and prepare mm. them for placement. As well, so yeah, it's it's a team effort,
0: I have to say. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. That's right. I remember talking to Tammy too about um, how now there's some internationals going back to their home country mm-hmm. and doing is it placement before they go home to try and help them transition back
1: yes. after their
0: degrees complete. I thought that's a really great idea (laughs) it isn't something that I'd heard of us doing yeah
1: I think um and I think the work that she's doing is really important in terms of that back transitioning but also setting up um setting up mentorship for Mm -hmm. those students once they're back there um Uh Mm -hmm. because yeah we have we've got like you know a few cohorts of Mm -hmm. um our international graduates now working in Hong Kong and Singapore So so they're going back to a supported
0: yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, now, and the other thing, um, this next question really interested me, and it surprised me when I read your um, draft um, teaching award application because I thought, oh my, well, wow, that's just so unusual. And oh, I thought it was unusual because um, you set up a dietetics clinic and you manage the building works. After you got a a loan, then you purchased the equipment and the staffing. Now, that struck me as not being part of a traditional academic way of working or not what I assume that academics did. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is part of an academic's way of working in these times? Because they appear to me that they are changing.
1: Yeah, I think so. And look, I think that all started. I wasn't planning to do. I, I did have help with the build. There was a, a building manager who I advised. Like I wasn't running around with my whistle and <laughs> blowing <laughs> it uh, at the tradies. But um, but my uh, my boss at the time, Professor Helen Truby, she said we need to start up a student clinic. Um, so go ahead and do that. And I was like do I have any guidance she's like no no just do whatever you think however you think it's going to work and I was like okay all right um this is new um wh- so the first thing I had to sort of think about was was how that was going to look and I was going to need a consulting room I was going to need a waiting room I was going to need furniture I was going to need booking equipment and um and I also wanted to for it to be a student clinic, obviously students have to learn from it, and I wanted I wanted the con- consultation room to be videoed to another room, so mm-hmm. students didn't have to sit in on the private practice consultation; mm. they could watch from another room. So, yeah, I had to advise the the building guy, "This is what I want. This is the IT that I want," and um, and I it was a grant that I got, so I had to work within. But Well, I had to budget mm. for it first, and then I was able to purchase all of that equipment. Mm. Um, yeah, so mm. I think, you know, like... And it still runs now? It does still run now. Other people have taken it over now. Mm. Um, but, you know, one of the challenges was how do you have, like, a, a running, functioning business that is, is there for the students, but to have patient throughput... It needs to be running all year, so it actually had to be running as a standalone entity mm, mm. Um, for students to sort of pop in and out of, mm. rather than it having focused the stu- on the students. Yeah, it yeah, had to be focused on the patient. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I got the advice of um, there was a private practice dietitian who had a number of clinics around Melbourne, and he sort of. Um, help provide some really good practical advice about uh, some of the aspects of it. So, mm. yeah, it does still run today. Somebody else is managing it now, which is which is great. It's good you passed on
0: the ball. ball that, um, I thought it was a fantastic and really interesting initiative. Yeah, thanks. Um, can you tell the story of how the clinic actually worked? What difference has it made to students learning dietetics and to the clients? Receiving advice.
1: Yeah, so it's a low cost clinic. Um, it is discounted because um, obviously, if a student is going to be giving advice, yeah, yeah. So we have a we have a it runs one day a week at the moment. It has gone up to two days a week, but we're back down to one day a week. And so we have a private practice dietitian who um, is employed to uh, provide consultations, and they're low cost. Um, I should have remembered. I think it's like twenty dollars or fifty dollars, but it's a lot. It's less than half price of what you would pay out in the real world to mm-hmm. see a private practice dietitian. Um, so yeah, patients uh, or clients, they a lot of Monash staff and students will come. There's concession rates as well, mm-hmm. and they can come and see our private practice dietitian, who is excellent, by the way. Um, and you know, if you need more than one appointment, then that can be arranged. Review appointments that are a little bit cheaper. And sometimes you might get seen by a student. Otherwise, a student might just observe. Or we do have the, um, the consultation might be uh, projected into another room where a group of students can watch the consultation and they can start practising their skills, looking at how the dietitian communicates, looking at how she educates, looking at how she manages to gather the information and that sort of thing so it can be interactive interactive as to different levels Mm, mm -hmm. so just observing all the way through to providing the whole consultation themselves Mm -hmm. and um, a lot of our students have never actually seen a dietitian work before so it gives them an idea about well what what am I going to look like when I'm when I'm actually working Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: hopefully it will also plant that seed you know we talked before about um, how private practice mm. is probably going to be, you know, the, the growth area for dietetics and it will plant that seed about what a private practice might look like as yeah, well. See. Uh-huh. Mm. Okay, that's great. Um,
0: Janine, what have your colleagues commented you, to you about about winning the National um, Teaching Excellence Award? What have your friends and family said to you about it? So different groups of people, what's been their response?
1: Uh, well. Did they know? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, they did know. Oh, not everybody, actually. Like, I told, like, a few of my colleagues because, mm. and um, and then when I actually won, then it was kind of like Monash social media really did well with it. Like, yes. every time I opened up Twitter or something there I was, so that was very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I Look, my colleagues have been really, really supportive and, and I feel like, well, hopefully they realise that my success is actually their success because I none of these initiatives that uh, that I've, I've done have, have occurred in isolation with just me. Mm. I've always had support of my team and they've been involved in advising everything that I've done. Mm. Um, and, yeah, my friends and family have been really happy for me and, yeah, very proud.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: Has it made any difference to you, to your next step trajectory yet or...? Uh, yeah, no, I, you know, I think the biggest thing that it has done is, um, help with my confidence. Like Mm -hmm. I feel, well, I feel very honoured and, you know, I, I think a lot of us as academics, um, you know, we're our own worst critics and I'm often full of self-doubt and questioning myself and, you know, am I good enough? Can I do it? And receiving this is, um, it has given me a lot of confidence in myself and I feel like you know I, there are other things that I could go forward and do now. Mm. Good.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> good. More than good enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, and writing it. As you know, I help or have helped a lot of people put, start to think about um, writing up their teaching approaches and their experience and their impact. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was the experience of writing like for you And what advice would you give to others applying in the future?
1: Yeah, thinking of applying. Well, give yourself some time because it is it is not a quick little fill out a form um, experience. And I guess mine happened from first applying um, for my the the dean's award, the faculty award, which then led me to the vice chancellor's award, which then led me to the AAUT one, the the university's one. Um, And listening to the advice that I was given. So uh, you yourself, Joy, looked over my applications throughout this process uh, with your eagle eye and I found that your suggestions were really beneficial. Um, I also had a mentor, I was appointed a mentor, uh, Kelly Marks, Helped me with my Vice Chancellor's Award application, and and she was from the Faculty of Science, so uh, she had like a, a whole different sort of lens to it. And um, Brett Williams from Paramedicine, he helped me with the AAUT one. Mm. Um, so getting advice and getting other people to to look at it, because I think when you know when I started off writing, um, I didn't realise that I was actually underselling myself because like we're used to writing for journals and everything being factual and using those qualifying verbs and everything. And um, and it, with these awards, it's about the impact. Mm. And it's not about the process. It's about what impact has, has this had. Um, and so change, And to be honest, it's really changed the way that I write um, other things as well, not mm-hmm. even like applications. Mm. Um, it's really made me focus on more there's an audience out there that don't really care about the process. It's about the so what. Mm. And and that's what I have to keep mm-hmm. being mindful of. So I, I do think it helps in other areas of my writing. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. That's good. The so what
0: question is, you can't underestimate it, is it? It really, really comes down to that. And higher education still has to show what what the value is that it adds to the society in which it's embedded.
1: Yeah, and e- exactly, and, and looking at that big picture mm. of it's not just about, oh, well, my students went from an average of 80% to 90%, like, again, so what? And what does mm. that mean for their practice in mm. the future and how is that going to make the world a better place? Yeah, exactly, like how safe are they if they're a
0: doctor or
1: how what impact are they going to have on their
0: kids in their classroom? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been fascinating, Simone. It's been really interesting talking to you because mm-hmm. it's still um, you learn so much from hearing the the answers to your questions. I really that's really true. Yeah. So um, I hope that that's true for everyone who gets to hear this podcast, which is our first. And thank you for helping us kick it off. Yeah, no
1: problem. Okay, thank you. you it's might. been a great experience, and. Um, yeah, like I, I just want to reiterate how, how important it has been to have supportive people around me who have given me these opportunities to be able to do these innovations. Mm-hmm. Um, being given freedom to uh, to do things differently is is has been the biggest gift in, in my career. So I just want to thank all of those people that have, have made that possible.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. And it sounds like you've had a lot of... Fun as well as the hard work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, thanks a lot, Simone.
1: Yeah, thanks, Joy.